Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Listen now to the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Welcome. Um, it's great to see everyone. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship. Now in the hearing of your word, help us to trust your word, to be comforted, to be challenged, and in faithful obedience, do according to your word. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Today, as you heard in Pastor Dohi's message, is Palm Sunday, which means that this is the sixth and last Sunday of Lent and the last sermon in the series of sermons I've been preaching on the ministry of members. As the Book of Order calls us, we have been reviewing and evaluating the integrity of our membership and considering ways in which our participation in the worship and service of the church may be increased and made more meaningful. Over the course of this Lenten season, we were reminded that we are a royal and holy priesthood. We are the body of Christ. We are the ambassadors for Christ. We are the church. And the church, as John Stott states, lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. The church is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. So even though it is easy to criticize the church for all her weaknesses and hypocrisies, her frequent silence in the face of injustice, her long history of violence, racism, misogyny, her questionable alliances with commerce, the military, politics, and empire. The church is still Christ's bride, 
through whom God's presence in the world is being made visible. In the third century, for example, when the church in North Africa was struggling through an ugly and painful split, Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, wrote an essay entitled On the Unity of the Church. And he called for unity in the midst of the church's infighting and went so far as to declare, he can no longer have God for his father, who is not the church for his mother. It was not intentional, but I nicknamed this current sermon series about our participation in the church, MOM, an acronym for the Ministry of Members. The church remains the locus of God's recreation, and even the gates of Hades will not prevail over her. Our reading today comes from the 12th chapter of Romans. You have to understand that in the first 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul carefully and thoroughly explained what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. For 11 chapters, he told us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that in him we have eternal life through faith. Having established over these 11 chapters what God has done for us so that we are rooted and reassured of the love of God from which nothing shall separate us, he now begins the 12th chapter with, therefore. Therefore, in light of all of God's mercies described over these previous 11 chapters, here's how we ought to live in light of this all-comforting truth. By the mercies of God, we are called to present our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship. Now, don't misunderstand the meaning of spiritual worship. It is not referring to some disembodied acts of praise. The word translated as spiritual is logikos, from which we get the word logical in English. This is why you'll see in the older King James Version of the Bible, for example, that we are to offer not a spiritual worship, but our reasonable service. And outside of the Bible, this phrase, spiritual worship or reasonable service, is connected to moral behavior. In other words, the church is called to collectively present their bodies in daily service and not just Sunday worship. It is this collective testimony of the church in daily, everyday, holy, loving witness that best testifies to the truth of the gospel. Paul then offers three ways in which this witness is to be carried out. He says, first, it must be carried out with sober self-judgment. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, or more, uh, you can, this is also can be translated as sound thinking, it's the same word, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Four times a form of the word think appears in this one verse. The mind that is transformed will not think too highly of itself. It will not be prideful or boastful or self-promoting. And at the same time, I would say, it is also one that does not think too lowly of itself either. There is no self-hate, 
or putting oneself down. Rather, it will have sound thinking, a right assessment about itself. For example, if you cook a meal for someone and they say to you, that was an awesome meal and I will never be able to eat another version of this dish without thinking of you, you would say, thank you. That is sound thinking. Don't go into false humility or into self-deprecation or pretend that, oh, no, it wasn't that good or that you didn't get to make it just the way you wanted to or offer any other excuse to deflect a compliment and the simple truth that you made a wonderful dish. Sober judgment or sound thinking means that you recognize your strengths and your weaknesses for what they are and that you understand your gifts, your part in the body of Christ, and you are thankful. Secondly, Paul says we are to do this as many, but as one. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one. Though many, we are one. We saw Paul making the same argument a couple of weeks ago in his letter to the Corinthians. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. Now you are the body of Christ together, but individually members of it. The body of Christ has a unity in diversity as a result of our participation in Christ. In Christ means that we share in his life with all those who are also in him. In his other letters, Paul tells us the myriad ways in which we are in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. Our redemption is in Christ. We have eternal life in Christ. We cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. We receive grace in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have forgiveness of sins in Christ. God supplies all our needs in Christ. And we will be presented to God perfect in Christ. All of this is only possible because we are intimately and inseparably connected to the life of Christ in Christ. And third, Paul says we can exercise our spiritual worship or reasonable service by using our gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We are given different gifts and we are called to use them. Let us use our gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, I do not want you to be uninformed. I do not want you to be uninformed. So let me just say a few things about spiritual gifts. First of all, spiritual gifts are gifts. They are unmerited. Gifts are not earned. 
In Greek, this is reinforced by the fact that the words gift and grace are related. Grace is charis and gift is charismata. Spiritual gifts are spiritual graces. They are not a measure of your spirituality. They are not a barometer of who's better or more spiritual. You cannot take credit for having any particular gift or gifts. They are given entirely in accordance with God's will, not ours. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing spiritual gifts to each one individually as the spirit or God wills. And a little later in verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, the church, just as God pleases. God decides and God gives, not us. Second, all who are in Christ have spiritual gifts. First Peter 4 teaches, as each has received a gift, use it, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So Peter 2 teaches us to use the gifts that we have received as each of us has received. And again, you can see this connection between the gift and grace. God gives gifts. God gives graces for all for the sake of the body. Third, spiritual gifts are often the ordinary empowerments of every believer, which some have in abundance. For example, in our reading today, Paul mentions the gift of service. However, you know that every believer, every believer is called to a life of service. Jesus himself set the example in that he came not to be served, but to serve. And we, his followers, are called to the same way of life. I also told you a few weeks ago that it is my job and the job of pastors Dohi and Danny and Eric to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. All are called to serve. All are empowered to serve. But some are especially gifted to serve. Similarly, Paul identifies acts of mercy as a gift. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful. Jesus also told parables about a king who treated his servant with mercy and calls us to do the same. So again, mercy is to be, is to be practiced by every believer, but some are especially merciful. Elsewhere, Paul even says that faith is a spiritual gift, but clearly faith is required of everyone in Christ. So instead of looking for some special or extraordinary spiritual gift. Practice the ordinary gifts that you have, like faith, service, mercy. You may not think of these as special or even as spiritual gifts, but these are graces that God has given to you and to everyone in some measure. And fourth, the list of spiritual gifts in our reading and in several other passages in the Bible are not meant to be understood as definitive or exhaustive. The point isn't to identify every single gift that the Spirit can give, or even to rigidly define what each particular gift is. 
the list of seven gifts in our reading today, for example, serve primarily an illustrative purpose. Paul is basically saying, here are some examples of what a gift looks like, and here's how you can use it for the building up of the body. For example, consider the example he gives about exhortation. He says that the one who exhorts should do so in his exhortation or encouragement. Exhortation or encouragement is a gift, but it is not meant to be understood as this particular and isolated gift. In 1 Corinthians 14, for example, Paul says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Encouragement or exhortation, same word. So you can see here that the gift of prophecy also includes encouragement. Rather than two distinct gifts, there is an overlap. Furthermore, we can see in Titus 1, in regard to the qualifications of an elder, Paul writes, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction, or more literally here, it's the same word again, to exhort or encourage in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradicted. The elders are to exhort or encourage in sound teaching. And so we can see here now, teaching and exhortation are also merged together. The point of all this is that there are no hard boundaries between these gifts. It's kind of like the fruit of the spirit where all the qualities are related and mutually support one another. And the main point of all of this that Paul is making here is that we are to use these gifts. Whatever gifts you have, we are to use them. Let us use the gifts, the graces, the different gifts and graces that God has given us. We are saved by grace, by grace alone. But we must also serve by grace, with grace, with gifts. Now, some of you know what your gifts or cluster of gifts are and how best to use them in the ministry of this body. Others of you aren't quite as sure. If you're not so sure, there are some easy ways to find out. You could ask the people around you what they think your gifts are and how you might best use them in ministry. The people around you can also tell you what your gifts are not. My family, for example, they love to repeatedly remind me that my gifts are not in things like music and singing. You could also, as I suggested a few weeks ago, just write down the things that you like to do, the things that you don't like to do, the things that you're good at, and that would be a good indicator of where your gifts might lie. And maybe the best way to find out is simply to do ministry. Explore. It's a bit like choosing a major when you go to college. Some people go to college with incredible clarity, knowing exactly what they want to study and what kind of work they want to do when they graduate, and that's exactly what they do. If that's you, God bless you, and I'm sure that your parents are very thankful for you. But others of you go to college 
with a vague notion of studying biology and maybe going to medical school and becoming a doctor, and then take an unplaced class in literature in your freshman year and end up unexpectedly majoring in Russian and meander over to seminary and become a pastor. Sometimes you don't know where your ministry lies until you get involved. For example, maybe someone will ask you to join the stewardship team, something that you haven't thought about, but then you discover that you just love that detailed work of reconciling receipts and making budgets, and it gives you great joy to see everything balance out. Well, there's your spiritual gift. Or maybe you volunteer to work with the children's ministry and kids just love you and they start to cry when it's time for them to leave you. That's a good indicator that that's where your gifting is. Conversely, if you find that kids don't want to approach you and they start to cry when you start to approach them, that's also a good sign too that maybe this is not where your gifts lie. When opportunities for ministry come up, sign up. Even if it's an opportunity that you have not yet considered, you might be surprised and uncover gifts that you didn't even realize you had. Now, many of you are using your gifts faithfully and fruitfully in ministry, even in this season of lockdown. And some of you have found new passions and ministries and gifts during this season like getting more involved with your local community or engaging in activism against hate and racism. Some gifts, like the gift of giving with generosity or leading with zeal or doing acts of mercy with cheerfulness, can be practiced as before. However, other gifts and ministries, like fellowship or mission trips, they've been curtailed or temporarily suspended. And so perhaps this is a good time to reassess our gifts in anticipation of future ministry. So I would encourage you today to participate in our last Lenten fellowship group in the breakout rooms following this worship service. We can help one another in figuring out or simply to reaffirm where your gifts lie and how you might best use those gifts in ministry. We can ask each other questions to see how our passions, our skills, our experiences, our personalities, our relationships might best align with a ministry or the needs of the church. And if you can't join a group today, you can still ask yourself these questions on your own or ask the people in your family or those around you. There are a number of ways we could do this, but for simplicity today, we'll use a set of questions designed by Saddleback Church called SHAPE. But as you can see in this chart, there are similar frameworks like design and serve and a bunch of others developed by other churches. And so we're going to ask some questions around these keywords. So SHAPE, S, spiritual gifts. How has God gifted me. You saw some examples in today's reading. Ordinary gifts. There are gifts like helps, the gift of administration and giving. H, heart. What are my passions? What is it that I love to do? 
If you're in college, what do I get up early in the morning for? That's a good sign of where your passion is. For those of you who are older, what am I willing to stay up late for and forgo sleep for? What is it that I'm willing to do without getting paid for? A, abilities. What can I do? What am I good at? What skills have I acquired over the years? P, personality. What is my personality type? Whether I'm an introvert or an extrovert might shape the kind of work that I can best do. Most of you have taken some form of personality test, whether it's Myers-Briggs or Ocean or the uh, Enneagrams. How does that impact the kind of ministry that God might be calling you to? E, experiences. What experiences have you had in your life that has made you who you are? And how might God use those particular and unique experiences in ministry? These are the sorts of questions we want to ask ourselves and one another to see how God has shaped us for ministry. Use your gifts. And so I hope you can have some good conversations today as we conclude this Lenten season in considering the ministry of members. Let me close with this thought. Spiritual gifts are valuable and useful and needed in the body of Christ for our service and worship and witness to the world. Spiritual gifts are the graces of God which empower us to fulfill the tasks to which God has called us. However, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, as great as spiritual gifts are, they are temporary and there is something better, a more excellent way. He writes in 1 Corinthians 13, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In the end, all spiritual gifts will no longer be needed. They will cease. They are in a way necessary crutches now because we have not been perfected by the love of God. In Christ, when we love one another perfectly, we will no longer need to do acts of mercy because we will no longer wrong each other. We will no longer need exhortation because we will all know the word of the Lord. It will be inscribed in our hearts. We will no longer need to contribute with generosity because all will be full and lack for nothing. We will no longer need to lead with zeal for we will all be perfectly obedient in Christ. Paul says that we won't even need faith or hope because all that we hope for, all that we have faith in, will be fully realized in Christ perfectly. That is our future and our hope. But until that day, God has given us His Spirit and His spiritual gifts. So until that day, we have the opportunity 
to use our gifts to fulfill our ministry and to make God's kingdom visible in the world as a church, as we do our ministry as members of the body of Christ. You know, when you consider the early history of the church, it's really hard to believe that a handful of people following a crucified leader would grow exponentially to become the dominant religion in just a few hundred years. How did that happen? Scholars point to things like the Roman peace and the infrastructure that they created, like these, the, the great road system, which enabled travel for missionaries and the spread of the gospel that much easier. Others point to the system of synagogues or cultural norms of hospitality as further aids in the spread of the message of the gospel. People of faith, of course, will point to the work of the Holy Spirit. All true, all true. However, one could easily argue that the most important factor in the spread and appeal of Christianity was the lives and witness of the average Christian, that is, the ministry and service of its members. Of course, the Apostle Paul and other charismatic leaders were absolutely vital. But the gospel took root because over time, people saw the superiority of the Christian life, that it was moral, that it was meaningful, loving, compassionate, and strange. They saw how their neighboring Christian family members loved one another. They could not believe and they marveled that non-family members in Christ were even ready to lay down their lives for one another. Athenagoras, for example, in a plea written to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius toward the end of the second century, said this about everyday Christians. Among us, you will find uneducated persons, craftsmen, and old women, who if they are unable to prove the benefit of our doctrine, yet by their deeds, exhibit the benefit arising for their persuasion of its truth. They do not rehearse speeches, but exhibit good works. When struck, they do not strike back. When robbed, they do not go to the law. They give to those who ask them and love their neighbors as themselves. The ordinary Christian may not have been able to persuasively articulate their faith in words, but by their actions, by their good works, by their service and ministry of loving their neighbors as themselves, they prove the reality of their being in Christ. It was the everyday ministry, the daily service of the laity, the people of God, the saints, the church that the world marveled at. This is our ongoing call as the people of God, as a royal and holy priesthood, as the body of Christ. 
as ambassadors for Christ in this world. So I exhort you, use your gifts in the service of God and fulfill God's call in your life and in our life together as the body of Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful that you have called us, that you have saved us and redeemed us. And invite us to share in the work that you are doing in the world of transformation, of renewal, and recreation. Help us to use our gifts to fulfill the work that you have given to us. And we pray together the prayer of Alcuin of York. God, go with us. Help us to be an honor to the church. Give us the grace to follow Christ's word, to be clear in our task and careful in our speech. Give us open hands and joyful hearts. Let Christ be on our lips. May our lives reflect a love of truth and compassion. Let no one come to us and go away sad. May we offer hope to the poor and solace to the disheartened. Let us walk before God's people that those who follow us might come into God's kingdom. In word and example, let your light shine in the dark like the morning star. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.